It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Professor Tim Noakes. Tim, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you. It'll be a, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me through our mutual friend, Peter Bruckner, who, for whom I have such high regard. So well, if he's your mate, then you're my mate. <laughs> well, I, I feel exactly the same way. And a big shout out to Peter Bruckner for the wonderful work you're doing. And thank you for making this introduction. And I, uh, I thought I'd start off with something quite interesting that I heard through the grapevine, Tim. Uh, I heard Claire Jilsing Stridham is releasing a new book. And it's called I Fought the Law of Running Guy and the Law Won. <laughs> Brilliant. So I don't, I don't know think she's going to sell many comments. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she'll ever acknowledge that she lost. She still believes that I won on a technicality, with whatever that technicality was. <laughs> well, we'll get into that in a minute. I, uh, I wanted to start off. I'm a, I'm a big cricket fan. And I know right. you as well, Tim. And I, and I was curious to know that, would you give up everything you've achieved in academia and in and, and the nutritional side of things to play test cricket for Australia? <laughs> Fortunately, I was greatly interested in cricket, but I didn't have the ability, so it wouldn't, it's not a question. I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have made it. Uh, you know, I've, obviously I've worked with cricketers and rugby players and it, it's a tough life. I think probably being a cricketer is one of the toughest lives you can possibly choose. So I think it's much easier to be an academic and sit in your comfort <laughs> and, and, and you know that your performance doesn't depend on what happens in the next 10 minutes or so. In a sense, going out to open bat, batting for Australia, walking out there with uh, whomever, Justin Langer, should we take Justin to the crease? And, uh, and realizing what those guys have unbelievable ability to do what they do. And I certainly never would have had, never had it. And I'm, I'm in a sense happy that I, I was never, never, never had the ability to be an international cricketer. I think it's a very tough life and you, you have to be a very superhuman person to do it. Well, I think, uh, you know, you're right. And I'm, you know, I turned 40 uh, last week, Tim, and I'm still playing. It's the winter yes. over here, but I'll be playing again next season, all, all going well. And we were lucky enough to have Ryan Harris and Chris Rogers on the show. And, and yes. with, also with Peter Bruckner, who is the, the team doctor for the Australian cricket team. Yeah, um, and 
basically, even though you, you weren't a cricketer, you were directly involved in prolonging four of the Australian players' lives in terms of cricket. And that included yeah. Ryan Harris, Chris Rogers, Dave Warner, and I believe Steve Smith was involved in that as well. Yeah. How and, doing? and Shane Watson as well. And Shane Watson, sorry. Yeah, he was one of the very first, in fact. I mean, I, I had this lovely time in Cape Town when he was here and uh, he asked, could he have a copy of my book? And Peter organized it and I signed it. And we had a lovely evening together and he told me his father had type 2 diabetes and he was going to reverse it with the diet. So I've watched Shane ever since. And in fact, he had a fantastic year that year. And so did Mitch Johnson. And Mitch was also there. The two of them were the ones I really met and spoke to. And we had a fabulous evening. And, uh, you know, you couldn't think that Mitch would ever bowl a, a ball in and around your head. He just didn't appear to be that type of person when we met him. He was the most gentle, con considerate human being. But obviously put a ball in his hand and he becomes a slightly different type of person. But I, I really love those two guys. They were just, they were very special. Well, I think let, let's go back a little bit because we need to give some context around who you are and what you do, particularly over the side of the planet. I, I feel really privileged, Tim, because I genuinely feel that, and I hope it's while you're still on this planet, that you will receive a knighthood for the work and the contribution that you've made and, and are making towards this, this global nutrition challenge that we are experiencing so i just want to go back because your background you've been working as a in the, in the sports medicine science side of things your whole life and how did you end up to where you are now take me back yeah that's yeah that's a great story um so i actually left high school with not a clue what i wanted to do i had some interest in physics and i liked physics because you could work things out and i didn't realize at the time that Physics and physiology are very related, and so eventually I would get into physiology. But I went to America for a year on the exchange program, and I was very fortunate that while I was there, Professor Christian Barnard performed the world's first human heart transplant in Cape Town in the hospital that, that I might have wanted to go and work in. Wow. And uh, during that period in America, I suddenly woke up one morning and said, I'm going to go home and study medicine. So I applied for medicine and I was fortunately accepted. So that was the first thing. But there were a couple of other things that happened all at the same time. The first was that it was 1968 and it was the first Olympics which were held at altitude. And as a consequence, the sports science suddenly became an issue because no country really understood what happened when you go to altitude. And the great Australian runner, Ron Clark, for example, trained at altitude for six months and he was unbeatable at sea level. He was 30 seconds faster than everyone else at sea level. And when he ran at altitude, the last hundred, the last 400 meters took him 85 minute, seconds, you know, as compared to normal of 60 seconds or 65 seconds. And he collapsed to the finish and he was unconscious and he had no reflexes and so on. I mean, he was, he had driven himself to the absolute limit because he had trained at altitude. And when the Mexicans had been asked four years before whether it was safe to exercise at altitude, they said, of course it is. What, what should be the problem? And of course, they were quite wrong. And, and he was unfortunately never got the gold medal he should have. 
but uh, and he was always a great hero of mine and and i know he was the mayor of gold the gold coast some years ago he died quite recently so that anyway the point was that this was the first year that that the olympic games suddenly realized they had to have sports medicine doctors and they needed to invest in sports science the second thing that happened was that the east germans became part of the olympic mix then previously they'd competed as part of germany now they competed as east germany and they started becoming competitive so there was a whole interest in in the development of sports science so here i am going to medical school in 1969 right at the moment when sports science is about to take off but of course i didn't know that so the next thing that happened was when i went to university i decided i would like to row i wanted to do some some endurance sports and it turned out that rowing seemed to be the one that you could learn even at my age without having previously done it and after about four months rowing the olympic coach from britain came out to cape town and he gave us a lecture and i can still remember that lecture and he went up to the board with his with the white uh, chalk and he draw drew an x and a y axis and on the bottom axis was the the distance you'd rowed and on the y axis was the blood lactate concentration so he told us that what happens when you get so tired in rowing is your lactate shoots up and already at 1000 meters it's so high that's why you feel so terrible and then it just gets worse to the 2000 meter mark and i literally went out of that lecture and i walked down the university at uh, the main entrance to the university and i said that's what i'm going to study for the rest of my life <laughs> it was it was a pivotal moment so what happened next year was so then it was 1970 i went into medical to medical physiology and medical anatomy and i wasn't interested in medical physiology i was only interested in sports physiology so i started teaching myself sports physiology and then in my medical training which was the next three or four years all i wanted to study was sport so whenever we learned about something i said well how does it relate to sport and so i managed to get through my medical training without knowing how to treat anyone with for anything it was <laughs> so never asked me to treat you or anything and i think that that's why i've always had this bias towards healthy way of living and not diet, not using drugs because i just i couldn't study them it just was completely foreign to me so anyway then i did my internship in the hospital and then i realized no this is not tim nox he's not he's not competent to work in a hospital setting and i cuz i couldn't cope with death and that was one of the issues but there were other issues as well i didn't want to have to learn the textbook cuz if you want to be a physician you've got to learn the textbook not understand it just learn it and i don't have that type of mind and i realized that some of my best people who i'd looked up to in fact have photographic minds and so they can take that book and in 10 days know the whole book but it would take me a lifetime and it would be wasted so i realized there are there are two components you you can have this this photographic memory and appear incredibly clever but you're not creative because why would you want to create anything because you're not creative yeah it's all it's all there anyway and so i i always wanted to work things out for myself and uh, eventually that so that's what i i decided i would go into research which i did I first did cardiological research did my phd in medicine and then i started start teaching sports science and sports medicine in south africa and we kind of pioneered certainly sports medicine but helped 
drive the sports sciences in South Africa. And so I, I did that for until 20, well, I did that right till the end of my career, which was 2014. But unfortunately, some things got in the way. <laughs> and what got in the way was that I developed type 2 diabetes and I got fat. And then I realized that and my father died from type 2 diabetes. And then by just complete chance, I came across the book, The New Atkins for the New You, by Eric Westman and Jeff Volick and Steve Finney. And, and I read that, and within two hours, I said, oh, my gosh, I got it all wrong. I've been promoting this high-carbohydrate diet. It's killing me. And I said, no more carbs. And so I cut the carbs, and the response was unbelievable. I just got so healthy so quickly. I could not believe it. So eventually people said, but you, you've lost 20 kilograms weight. How did you do it? <laughs> and so I said, it's so simple. You just eat these foods and you'd lose your appetite. And then eventually I wrote about it. And that was the end because I said, I don't believe the, the low fat story. I don't believe cholesterol causes heart disease. And I made my feelings public and that was it. I antagonized all the cardiologists at the hospital and my, my faculty. And then eventually I, I irritated everyone else. And so that, that's how it went. And eventually they decided to take me out and publicly humiliate me. So that started in 2012. I, to defend myself, I had to go to court and we won the case, but it took four years of quite tough work and we eventually got through it. But that's, that's another story, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about. But that's, that's <laughs> the sort of story. So now I'm retired and I'm doing a lot of writing and uh, researching the low-fat low story, trying to prove why the low-fat story never was, never was true. You've written so much, Tim. I think there was an excess of 750 uh, contributions towards books or published works. Uh, you wrote the book, The Law of Running, which, you know, coming from an ultra uh, and marathon background yourself, I think you've run in excess of about 70 marathon and ultra marathons to this point, and you're still running half marathon distance uh, at 70 odd. Well, I, I must change that. I'm now actually down to 10Ks, at 21Ks. What happened was <laughs> two years ago, I, I turned over to CrossFit and so I became very big and strong in the upper body. And my legs kind of weakened up. So now, now I, I train quite hard with, with CrossFit and I'm really enjoying it. So, so I've, I've had less interest in running and I'm much more interested in, in gym work now. I, well, I'm a recent convert to the ultra scene, Tim. I adopted a, a high-fat, low-carbohydrate protocol. Uh, really got stuck into it two years ago and I lost... Well, I've now lost 60 pounds of weight, yeah. put on, put on yeah. eight kilos of muscle and half a kilo of skeletal bone density, incidentally, and, yeah. and have completed in a couple of 100-kilometer ultramarathons. And, uh, you know, I'd never run further than five kilometers as of May 2018, and then I ran yeah. my first. And, and I attribute it absolutely down to the diet. And my well-being, yeah. and my good, my good skin, <laughs> and my ability to keep playing cricket at forty years yeah. of age, running in and bowling Absolutely. medium pace. Why is that, Tim? Why is that? Well, let me give you a lovely story. So I get attacked on on Twitter, as you know, and I've got a couple of trolls. 
And one of them is one of my former students. And, I, you know, I lost four students, four PhD students were, they, they hated me. I don't, I don't know why it happens, but I had, I had something like 40 students and, and 10% of them lived to hate me. <laughs> and so this guy is one of them. And the other day, there was a debate on what diet should you have if you're doing ultra marathons. And I made the point that we published a paper last year showing that a lovely randomized control trial where we took athletes running five kilometers and they were reasonably good. They ran it in about 20 minutes, which is good. And uh, they did no better on a low carb, sorry, a low fat diet than they did on a low carb diet. The performance was identical. For the first week, they were a little bit slower on the low carb diet as you'd expect but after six weeks there was absolutely no difference except of course that they burnt a lot more fat so i just made the point that you know we had actually done the study and no one ever refers to it they only referred to louise burke's papers from the australian institute of sport which are good papers but they're not randomized controlled trials they so they they cannot be considered definitive evidence they are nice hypothesis generating ideas, but they're not definitive studies, whereas ours is a definitive study. And what was interesting was that the, the guys who ran the 5Ks were faster than 88% of all Americans. So, so we thought that that'll tell you that if you're slower than, 80, than the top 12% of the runners in America, a low-fat, a low, so low, high-carb, low-fat diet's not going to help you. So you might as well shift to something else. But that message hasn't quite got through yet. Anyway, so I was then attacked by my former PhD student, former MD PhD student. And he said, oh, they're middle-aged men and they're slow and all this sort of thing. And anyway, we're talking about ultramarathons. So I said, well, I think what you should do is speak to Dave Scott, who won the six, the first six Ironmans, and Bruce Fordyce, who won nine comrades marathons at 90 kilometers and bruce was one of the guys that i got to go on the low carb diet and we developed a product called the frn four dice rose and my name notes frn so if you actually look on google and put in frn you'll see that'll come up as the the original squeezy and the only thing that that squeezy did for for myself, Bruce and Bernard was to make us insulin resistant and pre-diabetic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I said, well, I suggest you should ask Bruce what he thinks. So Bruce tweeted back within about 10 minutes. I would have run 10 minutes faster in all my iron comrades and I would have won 12 comrades, not just nine. <laughs> and then to which Dave Scott wrote, he would have done the Ironman 20 minutes faster if he'd been training on a high fat diet. So, so that was the story from two of the greatest ultra distance athletes of all time. The one who made the Comrades Marathon as it is today in the modern era and Dave Scott who made the Ironman in its era, uh, in its modern era. The man who, you know, Dave Scott is under-recognized because before him there was just, <coughs> excuse me, the Comrades Marathon. And the, as an ultramarathon event that was popular. And then along came Dave Scott and the Ironman, and that exploded. And then you had all these other races exploded. And he, he told me personally, he said, the key in the low-carb diet is you just, your body's not inflamed. That's point one. And point two, you're mentally stronger. Those are the two points he said. He said on a high 
carb diet, you're inflamed all the time, you recover poorly, you can't sustain it for very long. He said all his athletes who go high carbs might last five, ten years, but that's it. And, uh, and their mental attitude is not as powerful as if you're on a high-fat diet. So those are two of the greatest athletes of my era, and they both absolutely committed to the, the high-fat diet. Well, we were lucky enough to have uh, Kona World Champion 2012 Pete Jacobs on the show, and he's, he's had to convert to a carnivorous diet for health reasons, and he's now forging a comeback at, uh, I think he's 36 or 37 years of age yeah. now, and it'd be really interesting to see whether he can come back and reach the, the heights that he was during his high carb, which seemed to have quite a destructive effect on his body from what he was saying, which I found yeah. Really fascinating. Dave Scott had a very similar experience because he had slowly, after he'd won six, he came back a few years later as a 40-year-old. And then he'd converted his diet to increase lots more salmon and, and fats, but, but not completely carnivorous. And he came second in that race. And he said he was there. He could feel that he was already improving, but he was just a bit too old to win the race, perhaps. Yeah, well, at, at the moment, Tim, I'm, I'm trying to knock a sub three-hour marathon off, which will be 54 minutes faster than my fastest one. <laughs> uh, and and, and I'm, a, I'm a carnivore, give or take, and I'm, not, not, I'm about 99%. Um, I've been able to run 30 kilometers without any food or water at, at one go, without any noticeable sort of downturn. How yeah. might I train for that kind of distance at that pace? Yeah, I think that, you know, the key to the running a sub three hour marathon is to, to be run 10 Ks in under 39 minutes or so, or definitely under 40 minutes. And that's, that's what you need to focus on. You need to focus on five and 10 K distance uh, speed, but also including the longer runs. So the way I used to do it was that I would start at the beginning of the season and run longer, one longer run on the weekends. And to build it up till I could do 30Ks comfortably. And once I could do that, then I would start focusing on a bit of the speed work and get the 10K time down. And once you can do those two and you can run a 10K under 40 minutes, relatively comfortably, you shouldn't have a trouble with the three hours. But the, the key I learned is that you have to do the longer distances because that you have to develop the strength of the, of the chassis, so to speak. But you have to have the speed as well. And if you avoid the speed, you, you, you'll dip, it becomes difficult to run sub three hours. And similarly, if you don't do the longer runs, it's, it's difficult to sustain that the last 10K, the speed in the last 10Ks. And as far as eating goes, I wouldn't eat. I would just drink water on those runs <laughs> and, and not eat before the runs either to absolutely make yourself a fat-burning animal. That, that's, that's what you want to be. Would you ever consider doing like an extended fast before uh, that kind of distance, like a 24 or even 36-hour fast, or is that a bit too long, you think? Yeah, that, that's a great question because that never was raised, you know, in my era. That we didn't, no one thought like that. What we used to do was we used to do the carbo-loading story, but we would do three days off carbs and you'd feel terrible. And so we were convinced that that's why we needed carbs. And then the last three days you'd load up on the carbs. The thought of fasting or starving was just never was never there because we couldn't do it. We were so carbon dependent, we couldn't do that. 
Um, I'm not sure whether a fast will do it. What what it will do is push your ketones up higher. But you know, I, I think ketones may have a role in medical in the medical side of management of diabetes. I'm not sure that you adding even more fuel into a human who's got plenty of fuel because you're burning fat at such high rates. I'm not sure it's going to make much difference. You know, if Louise, one thing that Louise does well is she collects data brilliantly, and she's collected some brilliant data on athletes who have adapted to a high-fat diet for just three weeks. And in her previous study of the male runners, male walkers, I should say, she showed that after three weeks, just three weeks, at the end of their 25K time trial, they were burning one gram of carbohydrate maximum a minute. I mean, they just weren't burning carbs. They were burning so much fat that they'd almost completely suppressed carbohydrate oxidation. So if that's the case, you're burning so much fat, adding more fat, I'm not sure it's going to really make any much more difference. So, but the only, only point I would make is that that sugar and glucose act as a brain stimulant and they may help people run faster because it's acting as a drug. And, and I, I just can't see how that little carbohydrate could make any real difference uh, metabolically. It may well make a difference in the brain. Well, maybe you know the answer to this, Tim. I, I've really been struggling to, to speak or find anything anywhere online with this. But when I first transitioned to carnivore, I developed this really pleasant feeling in my stomach, which I can only really describe without being crass. It's like a mini orgasm. And about three months ago, I went full hardcore lion, just meat and water and black coffee. And it came back with a vengeance and started to spread through my chest and up across my arms here. And I can only I can only assume that it's the dopamine and the oxytocin or whatever being released in the gut. It when and it's and it only seems to come when I've been combining between five and twelve or thirteen kilometer runs. Mm. Like on a, on a run, uh, and I used to burst into tears of joy when I was running at about the thirteen or fourteen kilometer mark. Have you ever heard anything like this before? Well, I can only give my own analogy and. Uh... The reason I loved running ultra marathons was because we used to run 40 milers on a Sunday morning and not many of them, maybe four or five before the comrades, no, probably, sorry, probably three or four before the comrades. And I used to hit heaven. I would just read this ecstasy and, and I, know, I know exactly what you're describing. And it definitely started coming on earlier when I was, when I was not eating carbs. So I can understand that that but i i sort of explained it because i was diabetic or pre-diabetic and then i was so full of carbs that it took me 30 miles to get rid of all the carbs and now i'm only burning ketones and fats and then i was feeling great i remember my my best ultra marathon in the comrades i touched heaven at at 45 k's from 45 k's to 80 k's i was floating on heaven it was just it was unbelievable. And uh, I never quite got that again because that because then I pushed more and more carbs and, and you get a different feeling when you're eating carbs than when you're eating mania fat diet. So, I, you know, you, you found out, keep doing it. <laughs> maybe, maybe the fasting will help. Maybe it will make it better. 
Yeah, well, it's funny. I've been tracking my ketones and my, and my fasting blood sugar with the um, with the digital monitors, and you know, it might be point three ketones millimole oh. before the run, uh, and then after the run, after a few hours, it'll go up to maybe one point two, one point three, um, which I'll only achieve if I fast on water for 48 hours plus yeah it takes longer yeah. for me to to get into a deep ketogenic state although i think maybe i'm being more efficient with my ketones that's another story tim yeah you- definitely you, you should be more ketotic than that but there's something that's not been studied in people who've long-term fat adapted because i think our ketosis i mean mine has got less and less over the years and okay i'm maybe trying training less and maybe eating slightly differently but it was never great. Uh, I was never hugely ketotic. It would have been really high when you first switched over, I'm guessing. Well, you probably weren't yeah. testing back then necessarily, but yeah. It no, was... and, and you're quite right. We, we did some experiments in the 1980s, and in one of those experiments, I, I got up to three millimoles per litre. Yeah. Wow. So that was, that was pretty high in those days, yeah. Tim, one of the things that, uh, I mean, you're involved with lots of different areas, but some of the things that you're involved with now focus on the general public and the health challenges that we have around uh, metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes and diet-related chronic illness. Can you just explain to us a little bit more about what you're involved with now? Yeah, so so when I wrote, we wrote the book, The Real Meal Revolution, and that was the one that caused me so much trouble because it caused a revolution in South Africa and that was the book that I gave to Mitch Johnson and Shane, Shane Watson, and I signed it. And I've got a lovely picture of the three of us. And that was, it's one of my special moments in my career. So when we wrote that book, and I put the term revolution in, and they didn't want to put revolution in, and we put it in anyway, because I, it's got to be looked like Atkins anyway. And I mean, literally, I thought we'd sell a thousand copies, <laughs> but... It went ballistic in South Africa and all around the world. But what's really interesting is a statistic you may not know that as a consequence of that book, one of the first people who read it said it's a great book, but it's missing one thing. It's missing a diet plan. And she put together a seven-day meal plan and she put it on a Facebook page. And she literally one day put on a Facebook page, here's a banting seven-day meal plan Facebook page. Today, she has 2 million people on her Facebook page. And that's a measure of the extent to which this diet has percolated through South Africa. And it's interesting, it's crossed all classes, all ethnic groups, everyone. There's no language group that is favored by this diet. It's just everyone does it because it works so well. Brilliant. So, so that was what happened. And But when we wrote the book, I... We said that this is a great way to manage insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. We never said it could cure diabetes or reverse diabetes. But now we know that that's the case. And what I've learned, certainly in the last few months, is we don't understand cause and reason. Epidemiologists come along and they say, oh, the cause of heart disease is high blood pressure, high cholesterol, lack of exercise, obesity, and so on. And they, they're only causes if you reverse them and the disease disappears. Then it's a cause. Otherwise, it's purely a reason. And where we as doctors and exercise scientists have made the error 
is we've said, we know what the cause of heart disease is. It's clearly cholesterol. It's clearly this, that, and the other. But we've never done the proper trials to show that you can reverse the condition when you take out one factor. Now, what we know through the work of Verta Health and increasingly a whole lot of other studies, essentially, the only way you can reverse diabetes, and I'll, I'll qualify that in a second, but essentially the only way you can do it is eating a diet with less than 25 grams of carbohydrate a day. And when you do that, you can put the disease into remission. That doesn't mean you're cured because you've been eating a poison and you can't tolerate that poison anymore. And we don't, we're not going to give you the poison again because it's going to make you sick again. And people don't understand that. It was the, the carbohydrates are the poison because they made you sick. So we can't now try and make you healthy and then give you the poison back again. That's going to revert. It's just going to make you sick again. Right. But if you remove the carbohydrates, then you'll be fine. So, so I just proviso that if you have bypass gut, gastrointestinal bypass surgery, you can, in some people, reverse diabetes, but, but the cost is huge and the risk is huge. So it may work, but it's not for everyone. And the only other one is what's called the direct study, where they put people on a, a shake for eight weeks, eight to 12 weeks, and they can reverse the diabetes during that period. But it is a low-carbohydrate shake. And those people eventually have to get back onto a low-carb diet. They have to be put on a low-carb diet if they're going to sustain it. And the authors haven't yet acknowledged that, that this is still a low-carbohydrate intervention. So anyway, my point is the following, that when we wrote The Real Meal Revolution, we did not know that you could reverse or put diabetes into remission. We just thought you could ameliorate the disease. Now we know that you can start to reverse it, the consequences of insulin resistance. You can't reverse the insulin resistance. I am as insulin resistant today as I was 10 years ago. And I, but I don't have to show the consequences of that insulin resistance, provided I keep my carbohydrate intake less than 25 grams per day. So I've become relatively more militant now, and particularly with COVID-19, because people in my country, and I presume in Australia, the ones, people who are at risk are the very old, but it's also those with type 2 diabetes. And it's all the insulin resistance syndrome that, that's causing the problem. And so we've got a really good chance now, if politicians would listen, and if the medical profession would listen and get the pharmaceutical industry off our backs and say, actually, no, we're going to cure this disease by, by nutritional interventions. So, so my position at the moment is that I'm just driving on and saying, we've got the cure for type 2 diabetes. Now we must push it because this is a very, very catastrophic disease. It's worse than COVID-19. People don't acknowledge that, but it is because in this country, and I don't know what the numbers are in Australia, you're a smaller country, but in this country, we have 10,000 new diabetics every month, 10,000 every month. Every single one of those is going to die of diabetes. And so it's 120,000 new cases of diabetes every year. Wow. And yeah, if we, wanted, if we really wanted to take on a disease and make a difference, we'd take on, we wouldn't take on COVID-19. We would take on diabetes. And then we would help solve the COVID-19 problem at the same time. 
It's fascinating, Tim. And I, I saw some ridiculous stat. I don't know how true it is, but something along the lines that America was on track to spend 100% of its GDP on healthcare by the year 2041, like 21, yep. 22 years from now. And, a, and most of that is related to diabetes and, and heart-related issues, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, what's, exactly. What's the issue with being a type 2 diabetic to the body? Okay, so as you know, if you've got diabetes, your glucose is always elevated, your insulin is always elevated as whenever you eat. And the glucose just wears away at your arteries for, I think that would be the easiest reason. And then all the other dietary complications which, which are associated with the diet, particularly the polyunsaturated fats, they're highly toxic. So your, everything gets oxidized in the body, everything becomes inflamed, and eventually your arteries start to fail. And in diabetes, it's the arterial failure that's the real problem because that causes kidney failure, so you have to go on to dialysis. And you don't die on dialysis, you, you're kept alive. And in the United States, one year's dialysis costs a million dollars. A million bucks. And you have to be treated. That's in the law. If you have diabetes and renal failure, you must be treated. You have to get... So if you go and look at for example, in Los Angeles, you'll see that there are tens of units for treating renal dialysis. It's a massive business. So you get renal dialysis, then you get uh, strokes, you get heart attacks, and then you go blind. And eventually you start losing your limbs. And the first, when you lose your first limb from peripheral vascular disease, then you've, uh, you've got probably a year to live because that's how long it is from the first uh, amputation. Because your arteries just close down progressively, all of them. And so you're left with nothing. You've, you're not perfusing anything. So you're just a shell of what you were. I hope my father, Rick, is watching this right now, Tim. <laughs> He's a yeah. two diabetic. And uh, coming in those words is really, really scary. My father died from diabetes. So he went through this process for 10 years. So at 10 years, he was a very powerful, strong, independent man. By the end of that 10 years, he was just a shell of himself. He couldn't speak. He'd had strokes, couldn't say goodbye. He'd lost both his legs. He hadn't got renal dialysis. He hadn't had renal failure, which was, which was fortunate because that just takes away all quality of life. And I watched him die without knowing that, that well, I'd not me, but my profession was killing him because we were giving him the wrong advice. And I didn't know any better. And I kind of lived with that guilt. And then eventually, when I got the disease myself, I said, I've got 10 years to sort this problem out, because he lived for 10 years. And if I hadn't sorted it out, you know, I'd be 140 kilos talking to you now, I would have lost some limbs, I could have had a stroke, could be in heart failure, who knows, could be in renal failure, but that would be the position I'm in. And I would be injecting insulin all the time. And fortunately, thanks to Eric Westman and his courage, you know, I'm not in that state. Uh, I can't be certain that I'm not going to die of the complication of diabetes, but at least I've earned some extra time by going on the low-carb diet. And there's a lot of resistance. You've got your insulin resistance and you've also got the public resistance about what you're trying to do here. The, the story around the trouble you got in with, with uh, the medical profession and trying to take away your license related to an innocuous tweet that you responded to someone. Are you keen to share that story with us? 
<laughs> you know, it gets funnier by the time, by the day, but I can promise you it wasn't funny when we went through it because, so the tweet was really about someone wanting to know whether they should, whether she was making her child burp because she was eating cauliflower. I mean, you know, that's, that is it. <laughs> that, that, that's it. <laughs> so I responded, you know, that I didn't think that that could impact on her baby because what she was eating wasn't going to go directly to the baby, although it does go in breast milk and whatever. And then I said she should just wean the child onto low-carb LCHF. And I would have been fine if I'd said real foods. That would have been fine, but I didn't have the, ca the characters left. So I put LCHF, and that was it, because now that sent off the dietitians. And the lady who reported me, she reported me within six hours of my tweet coming out. I was reported to the Medical and Dental Council. And the reason was because three months earlier, we'd released our book. And all of a sudden, the dietitians were under pressure because they were being asked questions. And Nina Teichold, who is a great friend and who wrote the book, Big Fat Surprise, and who was one of my expert witnesses. Right, she said to me, dietetics and nutrition is not a profession because you're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to disagree. And I didn't realize that. So, so what happened was I came along with this other explanation of what you should be eating. And the dietitians had never been challenged before. So they didn't know how to respond. They'd never been taught to respond. And the only way they knew to respond was to wipe me out. So this lady then went to the Health Professions Council and she spoke to the lady who represented the dietitians on the Health Professions Council. And she said to the Health Professional Council lady, you've got to take Noakes out. <laughs> this, is, this is collusion at the highest level. <laughs> so, and that's what happened. Within three months, I was, given a, I was sent a letter and I had to respond to it. I responded to it. And the committee that had to review my response never bothered to invite me to respond to the information they'd got. When they got my response and her response, they couldn't make a decision. But there was such pressure to have me found guilty that the professor of ethics at one of the leading South African universities went against all the ethical constitutional rights that I have and she did not give me all the evidence on which I was being charged. So I didn't know what I was really being charged for. Then my own university, now this, is, this was the killer. There were four professors who then realized that the case against me wasn't going so well. And they then took it up to write a letter which was distributed to every medical school in South Africa, which distanced the University of Cape Town from me on the grounds that I was harming people by telling them to eat this diet and that I was acting unethically, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was the most defamatory letter you could possibly have. I grew up in a profession where we used to say, you don't criticize another doctor in public. And that has simply gone. And instead of calling me in and saying, Professor, we hear you've written this book and this is what you're saying, we need to debate it. No, they just said, you're wrong. You're wrong. So I'm, fortunately, I, I, I decided, okay, we're, gonna spare, we're not going to spare any cost. We're going through with this because I knew we'd win because we had all the evidence. 
So we went to court and it lasted four years. And I was in court for 28 days. And personally, I was on the, I was on the stand, was cross-examined for nine and a half days, nine and a half days giving evidence. And that is exhausting. <laughs> but fortunately, I had two of the best lawyers in South Africa. And Dr. Rocky Ramdas, who became my brother, we are just like this. It, we, we loved every moment of, as much as we hated the trial, when we were on the, on the stand and he, was cross, and he was examining me, we just had a ball. And it was those moments. What you learn in life is that the people who come to you are the ones you must embrace. Because I literally, everyone had fled from me. And there were a few people who stuck with me. My university had thrown me out. My faculty of health science had thrown me out. The department, that, that I, the department in which I worked had thrown me out. The institute that I started had thrown me out. And the, and the, the research unit that I had had thrown me out. And my profession had thrown me out. Six, six different organizations had thrown me out. The only people I had was my wife and my family left. And that was it. And that's what they, they aim for. They aim to, to isolate you, and then they hope to break you from your family. They hope the pressure will cause the family to disrupt. But they didn't understand that my wife and I have been married for close to 50 years, and that wasn't going to happen. Marilyn, is it? Yeah, Marilyn. Big and shout so out, Marilyn. We... Well done, you. You're champion. <laughs> you're rock. <laughs> yeah. And so, and we lived through it and we, and we won the case 13-0. So there were 13 decisions and we won nil. And what was so funny was that, so now we proved that the low-carb diet is evidence-based and it's not unconventional and it's not dangerous. And that we, we proved. The university has yet to say, you were right, we apologize. They've yet to change the teaching of nutrition at the University of Cape Town. The profession has yet to say sorry for what we did to you, including the Health Professions Council. And the profession hasn't said, okay, maybe we need to look at your diet and see what it's like. It's like nothing happened. <laughs> but anyway, we, I got through it. And uh, in the end, it was worth every second. Although for a period I had, I had marginal depression and I had post-traumatic stress disorder, I still get moments. When, when I get that feeling that something happens and I just feel it. And I get it particularly if I speak to doctors now. And I know some of them were involved. I, I get the same, that same response. You paved the way for a, a revolution off the back of this, Tim. And, and uh, I think the impact of what's happened probably won't be properly recognized until many years from now. And so like we, we are super grateful, you know, and the thing that I love about this whole community and the, the people that have been involved largely come from a real place of, of love and abundance. And they have a, just an innate desire to try and improve people's lives. And nothing proved this more than in the book that you wrote, The Law of Running, you you ripped out the pages that related to this this high carbohydrate diet. And no one does that. No one does that when they've got credentials to their name like you do. Why? How, what made you so different? <laughs> you know, I, I'll tell you, I think, you know, it was my father's death. I think that has to be a factor. 
and then realizing that I had type 2 diabetes because I thought I was superior. You see, I was athlete and running marathons and oh, my, my genetics is never going to get me. I can do what I like. And then I discovered, my gosh, that didn't happen. And I think that made me a lot more humble than, than otherwise. That was the first one. The second point was that that book, as you said, rightly, you know, it's been read by, by hundreds of thousands, you know, maybe millions of athletes around the world have read it. And amongst them will be hundreds of thousands of people with insulin resistance who will become diabetic if they follow the advice. And I couldn't live with myself knowing that I would be harming so many people. And I, you know, I don't mind if they don't take my advice and they say, no, we, we agree we're going to eat carbs. You said so, it's fine. But I had to get the other message out and say, no, listen, I don't, that advice is completely wrong for those with insulin resistance. So I think it was a matter of honesty that I just had to come out and say, I'm sorry I was wrong. Please forgive me and let's move forward. I, I really love that, Tim. And I, I asked this question of uh, Dr. Paul Mason the other day. I said to him, if you were given full veto rights over the population of the planet, what would you do to try and stop this, this health issue that we have? What would you do, Tim? Well, I would uh, disband the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> that's, that's what I'd do. Because, <laughs> because you notice I didn't go for the food industry uh, because the food industry, I don't think is quite as powerful as the pharmaceutical industry. And they don't have a hold on the medical schools. The medical schools are controlled by the pharmaceutical industry. So if you want to break that, you've got to break that mold. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that I've thought about this a lot. And one of the people who did attack me eventually was about to, I think, make peace with me, one of the four. And tragically, he died for various reasons. And I thought, had I been in his position, it would be very difficult because as a person high up in the medical school, you eventually have to realize you've got, you've got two choices. You either make the humans healthy in South Africa or in Australia, you make them healthy by promoting the diet that's going to make them healthy. But if you do that, you have to say the medical model is wrong, that we're following. We can't just get people to take medicines which don't help because the cause is nutritional. So any person high up in the medical faculty who says, listen, diet's important, it's more important than, than pharmaceutical agents, destroys the medical school. The medical school loses all of its funding, so it collapses. But if you don't say that, your nation collapses. And that's, that's what we've reached. And, and I can understand why people don't have the courage to do that. And instead, they just get cognitive dissonance. And so when Tim Noakes says something, it's just, they don't listen anymore. It doesn't matter whether I'm right or wrong. They don't listen. So, so that I would get rid of the pharmaceutical industry or the pharmaceutical industry's control of the medical schools and the medical profession. What about for people that think it's all too late? And I'll go back to my father again on this one, Tim. My poor old, <laughs> he's coughing and hiding tonight. <laughs> But I, I care about him deeply, right? He's he's yeah. uh, he's sixty nine now. How old are you? Seventy one to me. I'm seventy one. Seventy one, and you look fantastic, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> he's sixty nine. He looks about six hundred, and no. But he, I think he largely thinks that the damage has been done. He lived a sedentary life. 
He was a broadcaster sitting on his backside smoking 40 cigarettes a day. He thinks it's too late. Is it? No, no, honestly, it's never too late. And because the, the damage is just, just accumulating. The fact that he's got to 71 shows he's got pretty good genes. <laughs> As you describe it, he shouldn't have got there. He should have had some of the complications of, of diabetes already if he's going to get diabetes. And so, so maybe he's quite insulin, insulin sensitive, in which case there's even more reason because he will get even more benefits. So, yeah, it's a pity because once you, once you lose one limb, you know, that's, that's it. So he, he really needs a proper investigation, evaluation, and convince him that it's never too late. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I'm just watching another family member, not directly family member, who's just currently dying of COVID. But the person has type 2 diabetes. And, and it's so stressful for everyone. And that was what happened to my father. It was so stressful for my children, the grandchildren. There were some grandchildren as well. Sorry, his grandchildren, of course, my children. It was so stressful for all of us that I don't want to impose that on my children and my family. I want to die in my sleep, you know, never having taken any medication. That, that's my goal for medicine. And, and it's the only unselfish way to do it. Because if you don't, it's highly selfish the way you're going to die. And in a sense, that's what your father is being selfish on you and your families. Because he's, he's going to put you through enormous stress if he develops type 2 diabetes and dies of its complications. It is an awful death. So I tend to think that we have a responsibility to the way we die. And that means we've got to look after ourselves as best we possibly can. Tim, how do you go about, I'll, I'll take this back a second. I learned not that long ago that it's impossible to change people and that, and I learned the hard way. And I've now learned that the best way to impact change is to lead by example. What are some of the ways that you have been able to hone in that leading by example to get the most amount of benefit for the other people? Yeah, you know, I was always a, a kind of a loner and a bit of a maverick. And I think that, that kind of made it easier for me to, to be a leader because I didn't want to follow the herd. And, and, and one of the things I noticed is that, that I can pick up information quite quickly and see where it leads. You know, for, I'll just take you the more recent one on hydroxychloroquine. Does hydroxychloroquine work in COVID? Well, if you saw enough of the studies, there were enough studies early on suggesting, yes, it works. And then all of a sudden, there's a whole host of things saying it doesn't work. But then you realize there was political agendas being driving behind those. And then the other studies come through and you look at the quality of the studies and they look highly reputable, the ones that are working. So it's, it's very unlikely that the thing doesn't work at all. So, so but, but it's highly unpopular to say that. And I've been censored in this country. I've been censored. An interview I gave on radio was completely censored on the basis that the local minister of health said I was talking half truths. <laughs> and so, so that's kind of leading. But, but the reason I did it was because I'd, I realized from my physiology understanding that intubation in COVID is not the right thing to do. You have to do something else. 
And as soon as I heard someone explain why, I knew that he was right. And now this, I said that on April the 8th, and it's now July the 8th or something. So it's May, June. It's three months later. I was three months ahead of the curve because I could logically see that what this guy was saying made absolute sense to the physiology in me. And it was critically important because they were going to save lives if people listened to him. So I'd always been able to adapt very quickly to new information. And when I did that, there's no way I can continue to preach what I'd always preached. So if you're asking the question, I think that, that I get this feeling, listen, this is right or this is wrong. And I can't live with it. I have to express it. And I have to lead through to try and get people to understand what I'm saying. And I, I can't sit on the fence. I think I'm a very early adapter in that way. So you're quite right. How do you do it? You, you do it by, by, by leading, by example, and, and caring. I think you have to care as well. Because you have to care about getting it right and, and not getting it wrong. The... <laughs> I don't think this will age well, but with regards to this whole COVID scenario, like we've just gone back into lockdown in Victoria in the state of Victoria here for another six weeks. And I, I couldn't give two monkeys about catching the, the thing, right? Cause I'm, I'm fit and healthy and my vitamin D levels I just got my results back about six weeks ago, Tim, and they're six times the, the range from running around the park with no shirt on in the middle of winter <laughs> exactly. and then eating lots of high quality animal protein. But what, what do we need to do in order to get back to normal society, given what you know and understand about COVID? Yeah. And unfortunately I'm speaking in Australia and on South Africa. So I'm not going to be censored. I hope because <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, people watch, you know, I gave an interview the other day on, on the low-carb diet for preventing COVID. And it was also sense that they wouldn't play it. They wouldn't expose it. Really? All I'm saying is, guys, let's treat the diabetes with diet. And it's hypothetically, hypothetically. Yeah. Hypothetically, I would, uh, I would not have a lockdown. I would just say, you, you can't lock down the healthy people because if they get the infection, it's meaningless. You can only lock down the people who are seriously ill or at seriously risk, which is the aged population. You have to keep them away from, the, from active infection as best you can. But you can't control the virus. That's what Victoria has discovered. They thought you locked down for six weeks or however long you were locked down for is going to control the virus. It's not the virus who has to do what it has to do. And we don't really know how it's transmitted, I don't think. And so all you can do is the best, the best you can possibly do is to shield the most, those people who are at greatest risk and get the rest of the population infected because as soon as it gets above 20 or 30%, apparently the virus doesn't have any more where to spread and it, and it dies out. But in every country, you get this big curve and then it goes down and it disappears in time. And, and lockdown just extends that problem, as you've discovered in Australia. And I think New Zealand's going to cover, discover too that they're going to suddenly find that the, the population's not immune and when the virus somehow gets there, it's going to cause havoc again if the virus is still, is still potent, but maybe hopefully it will, will not be as potent. So no, I would be like Sweden and I would say you, you, it's up to you what you do. If you are young, you shouldn't worry too much about restricting yourself. 
if you're older, like me, I would certainly have locked down because I'm 70 and I've got type 2 diabetes under control. I wouldn't have gone out and sought the infection. I would have tried to protect myself. But I would understand that it may not be possible. And I, I, I like the way the Swedes approach. He said, you know, we just give them the facts and the Swedes will decide what they want to do. But this, this sort of Marxist fascist control is just, to me, it's highly dangerous. The Swedes are like, Mamma Mia, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have, you, uh, have you ever thought about a career in politics, Tim? <laughs> to affect change no, at the I'd highest be terribly level? Bored, I think. Yeah, I'd be terribly bored, I think. You know, that's, and, and I, can't, I'm not, I can't listen to that nonsense. Yeah, I've, I was involved in sports medicine at a political level for 30 years, and not one politician ever listened to one thing I ever said. That's that's what that's what I know. Would you support so, would you support my cause for running for prime minister of this country, even though I'm from New Zealand background, Tim? Absolutely. <laughs> Can I vote? No. <laughs> we well, need people who are who are health orientated and who understand that health's rather important in the outcomes of nations. Well, because I, 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 I'm thinking about ways to impact, uh, you know, and, and I'm a speaker and, uh, and I do some coaching and I've just completed my first book. It's not really focused on nutrition, but all of this stuff has come about because of the food that I'm eating. It's yeah. without a shadow of a doubt improved my life by a factor that I can't even quantify. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. I feel like you, Tim, I have this burden of responsibility now to be able to share this information and I'm thinking maybe the only way of doing it at a, at a proper level is to become someone really damned important. I'm pretty important now, but, you know, even more important. And because uh, I'm not... So let, me, let, me give you, let me give you some advice. Please. <laughs> From years of reading. So you need to go and read Law of Running again and read about Arthur Newton. Because Arthur Newton in the 1920s had his farm taken from him and relocated. And he got so angry. He said, I've got to pull the attention of the nation to my plight. And he said, the only way I can do it at a 39-year-old is to become an ultramarathon runner and win the Comrades Marathon. Had he, and he hadn't run since he was a boy, at about 17 or 18. And so on January the 1st, I think it was 1921, he goes out and he runs three miles and he, he can't walk for another week. <laughs> <laughs> By the end, by May the 31st, when the race is held, he wins the race by about two hours. He's, wow. he's the first guy to really go out and train. And then he became quite a famous, of course, he became a very famous runner, but he never got his farm back. So even then, he couldn't influence the politicians to give him his farm back. So, sorry. So what I'm trying to say is sport might be a good way for you to, to promote your candidacy. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm involved as uh, the fourth eleven captain of the Melbourne University Cricket Club at the moment, so we've got a little wee way to go to, to rise up the ranks. But um, speaking of land being grabbed, uh, you're actually born in Zimbabwe, aren't you? That's right. Yeah, and and you know that's that's really interesting because my dad. Okay, now I can share with all of Australia the story. My father was a third generation tobacco importer into <laughs> Liverpool. <laughs> So, so that and Liverpool is important because it's on the route from New York. So the, the tobacco would come from the southern states to New York 
or perhaps Virginia, but anyway, it would arrive in Liverpool. And then my three generations of Noakes would then distribute the tobacco throughout South Africa, throughout <laughs> England and the United Kingdom. And <laughs> Causing all sorts of heart disease and lung cancer. And, <laughs> and it gets worse, you see, because the family then decided that they'd had enough of importing. They wanted to be exported. So they wanted to go either to America, North America, particularly Virginia, or to Rhodesia, as it was then. And on, in 1939, the family had decided they were all lock, stock and barrel were going from Liverpool to Rhodesia. And my uncle, who was the leader of the family, who was older than my father, arrived in Cape Town the day war was declared, 1939, September 1939. And he was such a courageous man, he got back on the boat and went straight back to England and signed up. My wow. father also fought in the war. And they were in Liverpool, of course, was heavily bombed during the war. And this, the city was pretty, pretty ruined. And he realized that there was not much opportunity for him. So he said, okay, families now, we're off to Rhodesia. And so he came to Cape Town. They literally got in a car and drove to nearly 2,000 miles to, to Harare and set up shop and, and started working there. And within a short time, he, he'd become the doyen of tobacco in, in, in Zimbabwe. Wow. Yeah, so, so that... that that's, so he was a very, very brave man. and that, I had such respect for him. It was so sad to see him die of type 2 diabetes. So he went from talking like this, from being from Liverpool, to yeah. flying all the way to the Rhodesia and firing up the bra and ripping out some biltong. <laughs> That's like, about it. Like cricket with Dandy Flower. Know, the beauty was that my mother was, you know, so on the one side we got the tobacco, my other side was my mother family was involved in meat export. They used to provide the meat for the boats that used to go from Liverpool to New York, these ocean liners. But then, of course, the airplanes came along and that kind of died. So there wasn't so much meat that they needed. And so the, the business went into, into disarray. But anyway, she always believed that meat was critical. And she raised me on, on offal and, and lots of meat. And then when I went to medical school, I became clever. And I converted to a high-carb diet. And then my problem started. One of the, uh, you know, being able to switch from this dogmatic approach, which I've, I've mentioned a few times tonight, <laughs> Tim, what's, the, what's one of the other greatest findings that's totally flipped everything that you've known on its head over the course of your life? Um. Yeah, I think that, you know, if I come back to, I'll have to think about that one in depth, but I'll, as I get there, I mean, in my idea was that, you know, we showed the brain regulates exercise performance. So that was, that was a big story. And it, and it came to me very, very slowly over uh, 20 years or so. So for 20 years, I'd also been preaching this other dogma that when you exercise, your muscles get full of lactic acid and that then uh, causes you to be fatigued. And I slowly began to think, but it really can't be that. There has to be something else. And then slowly I saw the evidence in our research and I saw that what we were meant to be seeing in the laboratory testing, we weren't seeing. We were meant to see that people ran out of oxygen when they were sprinting on the treadmill or running at high intensity, and they never did. They always seemed that they could, could still get more oxygen into the system. 
and eventually I realized, but it came to me, I had to, I had to prepare this lecture, a very important lecture. And I'm, I'm, I'm a generalist, I'm not a specialist. And I was going to speak to all this group of sports medicine and sports scientists. And so I thought, well, let me look at the, the big flaws that we have in, in exercise science. And I then went and laid out the truth why lactic acid and oxygen can't be limiting performance. But I didn't know why. And all I knew was that something in the brain has got something to do with it because we can do these exercises and we don't die. Therefore, the brain's actually preventing us from dying. And that was the key decision. That was the key piece of insight that the reason we don't get into trouble in exercise 99% of the time is because you've got a brain that wants to protect you. And then it didn't take long to realize how the system works. So for me, that was, that was quite, a, quite a big change. I think outside of that, the, what were the biggest changes? Well, obviously, that you know, carbohydrates don't make you run faster and they're not healthy. I think that would be the, the other one, would be the fact that I had I'd believed that carbohydrates were healthy and fats were unhealthy. And it, it, were, it is so absolutely wrong. Yeah. And would you go so far as to say that carbohydrate and fiber are non-essential nutrients? Yeah, I would say so. And I go, oh. you know, it's really interesting because I come from a university. My, the university which turfed me out was actually the very first study where Ansel Keys did his, one of his first studies where he looked at different populations and looked at their cholesterol and their heart disease rates and how much fat is in the diet. And he did it right here in Cape Town and published it in 1955, I think, 54, 55. And he showed that there were some populations, the white population had more heart disease and higher cholesterol and ate more fat, and other populations ate less fat, had lower cholesterol and had lower heart disease rates. Problem solved. We know what it is. It's, it's fat and cholesterol in the diet. And then, so he was the first one. And then there was a guy called Traswell who helped promote the, 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 uh, the fiber story. So my university contributed two false theories. And, and the, the, it's really interesting that the fiber theory is an hypothesis that has never been properly tested. It's, it's got no evidence to, to support it. It became an hypothesis. It was accepted much like the cholesterol story was accepted in the absence of evidence. And there is no evidence that fiber is essential or that fiber will increase your life expectancy and prevent heart disease and prevents cancer. Zero evidence for that. And what about the consumption of meat causing cancer? What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's, that's nonsense because now the Annals of Internal Medicine held, had six articles at the end of last year and showed that meat is innocent of all charges. Again, I needn't tell you that these are all association epidemiological studies and epidemiologists don't have a clue what means causation. Causation means you have to take something out of the, out of the diet perhaps and that prevents the disease. No one has ever shown that if you take meat out of the diet, you prevent anything. There's absolutely no evidence for that. And that's the only way you can ever prove that meat causes something. 
But even in these associational studies where people who eat meat have a slightly higher risk, perhaps, of colon cancer, the risk is so trivial, it's meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless. I think it's like one extra case for 100 people eating meat. There might be one extra case of colon cancer. But that doesn't mean that the colon cancer was caused by the meat. It might mean that in 100 meat eaters, they do other things which will kill one of them. But you can't link it to the meat. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but, but people really have to understand the difference between causes and reasons. Meat may be a reason why some people get colon cancer, but the reason would be that there's a whole bunch of other reasons that go with it as well. Maybe it's eating processed meats or something else. Maybe there's processed meats have a toxin in them, whatever. The cause, the real cause is when you remove the real cause, the disease disappears. The problem is that humans have been eating meat for 2 million years and we didn't come up with cancers of the colon in excess in the past. Colon cancer only appears in populations when they start eating fiber. You heard well, that? well, 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 well. <laughs> yeah, and no one, no one ever acknowledges that little point. While I'm still triggering a plethora of people, what are your thoughts on a vegan diet for health? Yeah, you know, I think vegans are welcome to follow their diet for the reasons that they do, the political reasons and the, the sociological reasons, and they don't want to harm animals. But the reality is no vegan, no population in history has ever been purely vegan. And, and you can't because you have to have processed, you have to eat some processed foods from animals to survive. I would never advise anyone to eat a vegan diet because there are simply no clinical trials. So it would be unethical for a medical doctor to say it's safe for you to follow a vegan diet. I think there's more than enough evidence that if you follow a vegan diet to its extreme, you, you, you will suffer serious ill health. You know, I think vegetarians get away with it because I think the ones who are healthy cheat. They eat meat and dairy and eggs, but they don't announce it, and that's fine. But just don't call yourself a, If you eat one piece of meat a year, you're not a vegetarian. Yeah, you're an so don't, <laughs> No, Don't call yourself. And I, I'm very happy that, that you might say I'm, a, I'm an almost vegetarian, but I think there are very few people who are truly vegetarian and, and live healthy lives for a long time. Yeah, let's, it's, uh, if you are trying, if you're doing it because you, for the animals, right, there's a whole nother scenario involved with the crop deaths, the, like the sheer thousands, tens of thousands of bugs and animals that are killed in the crop, the cropping of the, the plants and everything else. That's, that's a whole nother podcast, Tim, but, yeah. um, you know, it's no, it's no accident that, uh, all of the people that are involved in this community, this low carb community, low carb down under and wherever else, are in relatively like in some in fantastic shape, you know, like <laughs> like no one's no one's really fat, or the or if they were fat, they're getting slimmer, you know. Yeah. And um, I, I'm going to finish up in a second, uh, Tim, because you're a busy man, and I and I. I've been so grateful that you've been able to share some of these wonderful stories with us because the whole point of the show is to imp to inspire and empower people to take their life into their own hands. And if we're able to do that 
with seven plus billion people, you know, the world would be a very different place. But there's one thing that's really uh, got me at the moment. Your lovely daughter, Candice, wrote a book called A Little Horse Called Pancakes. Do you wish she'd picked another food name for that horse? <laughs> yeah, no, she's a, you know, it's very funny because she always, she always thought she was the, the, the weak academic and it's nonsense. She's, she's written actually five of, I think there are five books now in that series and they've, they've been very special. She just, she has a love of horses that, that surpasses everything else. Of course, her daughter's also part of that, but uh, she's having a fantastic life and she's, she writes so well. I hope everyone will, will read her books. They're just such full of, they're real treasures. So could she have chosen a different band? Well, because the pancakes, the, the horse the looks like it's been squashed like a pancake. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. It's a tiny little horse. <laughs> and uh, it was so funny because when she bought her first house, she had a small garden. In fact, she had a tiny garden, but she had to have the horse. And the horse would live on this, you know, like about a 10 meters square at maximum garden. And the horse would live there. Now it lives in a much more posh, it's got lots of own space, lots of paddocks and so on, but it's, it's survived amazingly well. It's quite an old little horse now, but it's, and, and her story, you see, her, you wouldn't know this, but, but my son-in-law coaches one of the South African rugby teams, the Stormers. Ah, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and so, so she, he's, and I helped him along the way in his coaching, and he's all about team. And it's all about the team will make up and believing and so on. And so my daughter puts those stories into this little horse. This little horse has got to have belief systems, got to be part of a team, and it's not selfish. And that's the kind of the, the principle she's trying to get over to the public about, about that's how you should live your life. A little horse called Jus van Vesterhausen. <laughs> <laughs> Something that just came into my mind, Tim. Whatever, like I'm a New Zealander and I will always support New Zealand in sport. And I was lucky enough to have Sir Steve Hansen on the show who yes, shared some amazing okay. stories. My, my thoughts on this whole low-carb approach, and I know Sonny Bill Williams uh, or Quade Cooper has jumped on yeah. this carnival diet. Is it just a matter of time that one of these teams, whether it be the, the Springboks or Australia or Scotland or Ireland or Wales, jumps on this as a team and then just dominates because of the, the health benefits associated with that, do you think? Yeah, I think I do think that you know, I've worked with people like David Pocock, uh, the great Australian uh, number six, and he's, he found that he, he benefited hugely from the carnivore diet. He put on two kilograms of muscle. I mean, you've never seen a body like his. And he put in two kilograms of muscle and lost a kilogram of fat and became stronger. But he said, I couldn't do it with completely carb-free. He had to take some carbs on the night before a big match. On the morning of a big match, he would take carbs. So, so he, to me, was the epitome of someone who's involved in a very explosive component and who found, found that the diet helped. And he also noticed recovery was improved. And I think that that's the component. It's the recovery that's going to be really important in, in time because that's what the, this sport has come down to now. Professional rugby is—it's all about recovery, and and I've I've no doubt that if you're eating a high carb diet, you are in trouble. You're inflamed, 
you're going to recover less quickly, more likely at risk of injury. So, yes, it will happen. I think it's happening already. I know the, the English team consulted me and they were already pretty low carbs. And that was about two years ago before the World Cup, so probably 2017. And they were already going that way and certain of the players were clearly low carbs. Um, the, the South Africans, when you, when you looked at their bodies, they looked like they were pretty low carbs. There wasn't much evidence for insulin resistance there. And in fact, when people looked at, looked at that picture, they said, these guys are going to win the World Cup. In the very first picture, they saw the team. They, they'd never seen a Springbok team looking as, as strong as that. So I think they've moved a long way. And, and certainly the teams I work with, we're, we're continually encouraging them to eat less, carb, less carbs. Well, I tell you what, Tim, I could talk to you about all of the stuff until my teeth fall out of my head. Um, but uh, I'm going to wrap this up. Is there anything that you'd love to finish on before we part? No, with? I just like, you know, I, well, you know, you said that the, the low-carb group looks healthy and they are really healthy, but they're so vibrant and enthusiastic and intelligent. I'm, I'm not referring to myself, but as a group, the group is so intelligent and you have to be because we're taking on the world and, and we don't worry about it because we can read the evidence and we've interpreted it and this is what we believe. It's, I just, I got very bored of going to conferences over the years, the usual sports medicine, sports nutrition conferences. It's always the same, but with this, it's, they're just such interesting people. They, they, they're so vibrant and there's such a wonderful feel. So it's a group that's going to win in the end. It's just going to take a long time. And thank you for having me. You're a brilliant interviewer. You made me feel like I've known you all my life. And I was very happy to, to share any story with you because I, I trusted you implicitly. So, so thank you for, for giving me that confidence. And congratulations. You absolutely have got all it takes to be a politician, except you're too honest. So maybe that's <laughs> going to be a problem. <laughs> oh, it's very, very kind of you, uh, Tim. And, and it's because of the work you're doing that allowed me to get physically in shape, that allowed me to meet the woman of my dreams in the streets of Melbourne. I went up to her and told her that she was stunning and if she'd go out and have a drink with me. And it turns out, Tim, that her last name is Maidenover. As in, <laughs> don't believe it. Uh, it's a hundred percent the truth. Hand on heart. I'm too honest. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Tim Noakes. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. 
go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.